Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. 17. I'm sure most of you, maybe even in high school or college, read the famous Charles Dickens novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom. It was an age of of foolishness. I want to share with you a tale of two churches this morning. A tale of two churches. First, compromised church has a heart for lost people. They tailor all of their worship services to reach seekers who are searching for Jesus. And the pastor at First Compromise Church really doesn't open his Bible and preach. He gives a lot of inspirational stories and then maybe flashes a few scripture verses up on the screen to support what he's saying at First Compromised Church. And they're reaching a lot of younger people. They're reaching the millennials. Those of the younger generation that have grown up with moral relativism. And at First Compromise Church, they really don't talk about Jesus being the only way of salvation because that's a little bit too offensive. That's a little bit too narrow-minded. Jesus is one of many good ways. Jesus is a good way, but he's not the only way. And as a matter of fact, The pastor never really talks about sin or repentance or the need to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. And as a matter of fact, they don't talk a lot about hell at First Compromise Church. As a matter of fact, the pastor at First Compromise Church has actually questioned the reality of hell during some of his sermons. And First Compromise Church is busting at the seams. They're probably going to be going to three or four worship services here in the near future. And they truly want to see the younger generation reached for Christ. But yet, in an attempt to reach the lost for Christ, have they lived up to their name, First Compromised Church? That's the first church in our tale of two churches, First Compromised Church. Let me tell you about the second church in our tale of two churches, First Isolated Church. They've got a great mission statement. They want to reach the lost for Christ at first isolated church. But yet they're very fearful of this culture. And at first isolated church, the pastor's sermons are really against, uh, he lambasts against culture. He's always getting very political. And really they're not reaching a lot of people. It's shrunk down to a handful of a bunch of angry and fearful people who are really afraid of the big bad world out there. And if a lost person does show up to First Isolated Church, they feel very uncomfortable because they don't fit the protocol of what it's supposed to be in this respectable First Isolated Church. And so they've hunkered down with this mentality. And here's, the, here's become the model of First Isolated Church. We 24 and no more. First isolated church is dying and about to shut their doors forever because they've withdrawn from the world. They're afraid of the world. They're not reaching the world. And they've lived up to their name. First isolated church. Two churches. 
First compromised church and first isolated church are both sinful expressions of a church that's lost its focus on the mission of Jesus Christ. Look with me in your Bibles in John 17 to what we looked at last week, verses 15 and 16. And I want to just remind you of where we left off last week. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And there were two things I brought up last week, two things we need to remember. Number one, we cannot be lulled into friendship with the world. We're not of the world. We're not a product of this world system. So Jesus' prayer will not allow us to compromise with the world. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So number one, we cannot be first compromised church or first compromised Christian. But here's the second thing Jesus will not allow us to do. We can't disengage from the world. We can't isolate ourselves from the world. We can't pull away from the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. So we've got to not isolate ourselves from this culture, which means that being a Christian in this culture today is dangerous. It's risky. It puts you on the front lines of spiritual warfare. And that's why last week, what did Jesus pray for? He prayed for our spiritual protection. Remember all the ways that he guards us, he protects us, he preserves us to the end, he protects us from the world, he protects us from the evil one, he protects us from disunity, he protects us from from disengaging. And so we need his spiritual protection. But here's the question for this morning. It's a very important question. How do we engage a lost culture without compromising the truth of the gospel? It's a very important question that we will be faced with in days to come and have to wrestle with. How do we engage, faithfully engage, a lost culture without compromising the truth of the gospel? Well, let's read Jesus' words. Our text this morning, John 17, 17 through 19, just three verses. Jesus prays to the Father in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay, here's the main point of this passage this morning. Christ has sent you into the world on a mission to declare his gospel. Now, I've I've chosen those words very carefully. Christ has sent you. He's commissioned you. He's sent you. Where has he sent you? He sent you into the world. What are you to do in the world? You're on a mission. What's this mission you're to do when you're in the world? You're to declare the gospel. Christ has sent us into the world. Now, what will you and I need to faithfully accomplish this mission? What are we going to need? Well, we're going to need spiritual protection. 
That's what Jesus prayed for last week. We're going to need spiritual protection, but we're going to need something else. Not just spiritual protection, but spiritual sanctification. We need to be set apart by Jesus for this mission. So I want to examine this passage of Scripture this morning by just asking three central questions. First question, fundamental question, number one, what is the mission? Now, we see this in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have also sent them into the world. Jesus has sent us. Now, that's a very unique word in the original language. It's the Greek word apostello, where we get the word apostle. It means to be sent out on a mission. That's what the word means. Back during Jesus' day, during the Greek culture, they would have kings and they would have dignitaries and they would send out envoys. They would send out ambassadors that would go in the authority of the king and they would be sent out with a message. That's the word Jesus is using here. You are sent out on a mission to share the message of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus himself was sent out. Forty times in the Gospel of John, it says Jesus was been sent by the Father. He's been sent. He's been sent. For the sake of time, we won't go back and look at those, but you can go back through the Gospel of John and just see those. He was sent by his Father to accomplish a mission. And Jesus did that. He came and he preached the Gospel. He healed the sick. He taught in the synagogues. And then he, he died on the cross and he cried out, It is finished and then he died was put in a tomb rose again ascended back up to heaven and mission accomplished for jesus right mission accomplished but is the mission accomplished for us no mission is not accomplished for us it's accomplished for jesus but he's given us a mission and jesus is very clear as to what our mission is right before he went back up to heaven his last words to us in all the gospels and in acts you're familiar with these words, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. This is called the Great Commission. This is Matthew's version of our mission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples. Go to all the nations. Mark 16, 15. Jesus says it a different way in Mark's gospel. He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. So make disciples of all nations. Go into all the world. Proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel. In Luke, Jesus tells his disciples this in Luke 24, 46 through 47. He said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Go to all nations, make disciples, preach the gospel, preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And how are you going to be able to do this? Well, Acts 1-8 tells us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is very clear, crystal clear in his, his marching orders to us in our mission. We've been sent out to share the gospel, to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel to all creation, to go to the nations in the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. That's our mission. But yet here's what's going to happen when you take that seriously. If you take seriously being sent out on a mission to share the gospel, you're going to be faced with two types of responses from this culture. 
and you've probably experienced this yourself. You're going to face either ambivalence on one hand or antagonism on the other. What do I mean by that? Ambivalence. You go and you share the gospel, you talk about Jesus, and somebody's going to say, well, that's, that's interesting. That's good for you. I'm glad that's what you believe. I really don't care. Don't, don't, don't force it down my throat. If you choose to believe that, that's okay for you. I really don't care. You, you meet those people that just don't really care about Jesus and the gospel. They're ambivalent. On the other hand, you meet those people that are antagonistic. They get violent. <laughs> they, get, they get harsh. They get angry. They, they persecute. They, 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 they get very upset and angry. And so, as I said last week, if you remember that diagram, we are intersecting in what, either what's a, a post-Christian or a pre-Christian world. You take your pick. But we are not in Kansas anymore. We are in a world that is diametrically not just opposed to the gospel, but, but ignorant of the gospel. They don't know. So here's the issue. We can't expect lost people to know the truth because they are lost people. And we're called to go on a mission into the world. So Jesus has sent us into the world. That's, that's number one. What's the mission? The mission is we've been sent by Christ's authority into the world to declare the gospel, to make disciples, to, to, to share his gospel with all creation. That is our mission. But number two, what do we need in order to accomplish the mission faithfully? What do we need to do it faithfully? Now, oftentimes when we think about evangelism, we think about missions, we think about sharing the gospel, where do we often start? Okay, what's the next program? What's the next initiative? What's the next um, uh, marketing thing we can get? We, we get all into programs and structures and strategies and all these types of things. What can we do that will be relevant to this culture? That's not where Jesus starts. Jesus actually starts with a prayer for our sanctification. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify. What does sanctify mean? It means to make holy. That help you any better? What does it mean to make holy, to make sanctified? It means to be set apart or dedicated or consecrated to God in his service for his unique purpose. Think about the Old Testament for a moment. In the Old Testament, God set apart certain people, priests. He set them apart. God set apart animals for sacrifice. God set apart furniture in the temple. God set apart utensils. God set apart the nation of Israel to be distinctly different. And so this word sanctify carries really two shades of meaning. The first shade of meaning that this word sanctify means that Jesus cleanses us. He makes us holy. He cleanses us. He sets us apart. He he cleanses us and washes us of our sins so that we are uniquely different from the world around us. We see this in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. Okay, it's a lifestyle of holiness that's distinctly different from the world around you. 
Your values, your lifestyle, your attitude, the way that you live is distinctly different. You're set apart. Titus 2.14. Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, to sanctify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Jesus has set us apart. He's called us to be holy. Now here's some confusion. Sometimes people confuse holiness with morality. And there's a huge difference. Let me give you the difference between morality and holiness. Morality says, what's the minimum requirement I have to do to make sure I look good in front of other people so I don't look stupid or I don't look sinful? That's what morality says. Morality says, give me a list of do's and don'ts that I need to do so that I can somehow make it on God's good list of of, of being earning my salvation. See, morality looks at the externals. Morality says, how can I externally do good behavior modification so maybe God will accept me and I'll look good in front of others? Morality never gets to the heart. Holiness, on the other hand, is a total change where God transforms you from the inside out. Holiness says, I don't want to sin because I love Jesus so much. Holiness says, you know what? I desire purity in my thoughts and in my heart and in my actions because I love Jesus and I'm quick to repent and and I want a pure heart. I want to please Jesus because he's my savior. You see, morality looks at the externals. Morality looks at behavior modification. Holiness is an internal cleansing that starts in the heart. You see, on Wednesday nights, we've been studying the Ten Commandments. Those of you that have been coming on on Wednesday nights understand that for every one of the Ten Commandments, there's an outward action, right? But behind that, there's the internal action of the heart. For example, let's talk about adultery for a moment. What's the commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Most moral people will say, that's good, I got that one down. I'm not going to commit adultery. But Jesus says, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You see, the holy person says, I don't even want to lust in my heart. And the the holy person says, I I know that just the thoughts that I have towards others are offensive to God. Morality says, yeah, I've got that one down. I won't commit adultery. Holiness says, I desire holiness in my heart. What about murder? Jesus, or the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. Most of us here will raise their hands and say, I've never murdered. I got that one down. Morality says, "I've I've checked the box. I won't murder. Jesus says, If you're angry with somebody, it's as if you murdered them in your own heart. You see, holiness says, I'm desiring to to please God in my heart. I I don't want to murder somebody in my thoughts. So there's a huge difference between morality and holiness. Jesus is making us holy. That's the first shade of meaning, this whole idea of cleansing us. But there's another shade of meaning in this word. It means to be set apart for mission to be set apart for mission. It's in the context here. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world on a mission. We've been set apart from the world to go to the world. We've been set apart from the world to go to the world. And so Jesus says, in order for us to realize that in the effectiveness to be able to do this, we need to be clean vessels that the Lord can use. Now, this doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean a lifestyle that desires to please Christ, a lifestyle that's quick to repent, a lifestyle that's different from the world around you. 
You see, you can nullify your message by your lifestyle. And yet, we would fail miserably if we're not sanctified in the truth. Notice what Jesus says here. Sanctify them in what? In the truth. And he defines truth. Your word is truth. Now, Jesus could have said your word is true, and there would be nothing wrong with that statement. But by Jesus saying your word is truth, he's making a categorical statement saying Jesus' word, God's word, is absolute truth. It's the inspired, authoritative, inerrant word of God without any mixture of error. It's the word of truth. What did Jesus say earlier in John's gospel, in John 8, 31 through 32? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What's the truth there? His word. If you abide in his word, the word of truth, it will set you free. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 19? David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's it's God's truth of his word. Psalm 119, 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. 2 Samuel 7, 28. And now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Let me just say it this way. Your effectiveness in declaring God's gospel to a lost and dying world is directly proportional to how sanctified you are in his truth. Let me put it another way. You will not be as successful in the mission if you aren't immersed in God's truth as your very life, if you're not sanctified by his truth, if the word of God does not impact you fully. You see, here's what we fear in our culture, don't we? If I really share with somebody what I really believe, they're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to think I'm weird. They may be offended. So what what are we tempted to do? We've got to be relevant. We've got to maybe water down what we're saying. We maybe need to soft pedal what we're telling people to do because after all, if we really want to reach people, we can't tell them the full truth because that's going to scare them away. A few weeks ago, a hipster pastor in a large megachurch in New York City was on The View. I don't know if you heard about this. And he was asked questions and Joy Behar asked him, what's your view on, on abortion? Mega pastor, the lights are on him. Here's what he said. That's the kind of conversation we would have finding out your story, where you're from, what you believe. I mean, God's the judge. The audience breaks out in applause. People have to live their own convictions. That's such a broad question to me. I'm going higher. I want to sit with somebody and say, what do you believe? He dodged the question when asked on national TV. What do you believe about abortion? Now, before we get upset with him, think about the pressure he's under. Think about what you would do in that moment. Okay, you're on the view. All those ladies are looking at you. You're a pastor in Manhattan. 
It's a cool church. You're on national television. All the lights are shining upon you, and you have that moment to declare truth, and you backpedal. Now, before we get mad at him, how often has that been the case for you when those lights have been shining down upon you? Not that you were on the view, per se, but in those moments where you were asked to give a defense or you were asked to share your conviction and you just clammed up or you said something and you weren't faithful to the gospel. You see, it's a tough place, this world. We get fearful of what people are going to say. And here's what we're tempted to think. If I just soft pedal or become relevant or downplay the gospel, then that will be more appealing to lost people. But you see, here's the problem with that. If you soft pedal the gospel, you've cut the guts out of the gospel and you don't have any power there to save anybody because it's not the gospel. And see, that's the problem that we fall into is that we don't believe God's word can actually do what God's word says God's word can do. What does Isaiah 55, 11 say about God's word? So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. I think the King James says void but it shall accomplish which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. If you share God's word, it's going to go out and accomplish what it's going to accomplish. Because Hebrews 4.12 says this, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see countless churches in an attempt to be relevant with a non-offensive message of the gospel have actually cut the guts out of the gospel and there's no power there to save lost people. So there's a temptation to be a compromising Christian or a compromising church. That's the temptation. That's one temptation to compromise. The other temptation, I said, is to isolate. So there's both temptations there. If I'm going to say something, I'm going to compromise. Or I'm not going to say anything at all. I'm just going to isolate because my my message is so confrontational. I'm just going to isolate and not say anything at all. Jesus will not give you those two options. He will not allow you to compromise and he will not allow you to isolate. He will not allow you to do that. Because he says right here, I have sent you into the world on a mission. And here's the thing that I want to speak to, especially among this congregation. If I was in Manhattan among a bunch of different types of people, my message would be different. You're rural Colorado people who are probably more right-wing leaning in your politics. Do not put your trust in power politics to bring about reformation in America. Here's what we often think. If we just had the right president things will be better. If we just had the right Supreme Court justices, things will be better. If we just had the right Congress, things will be better. If we just had the right governor, mayor, go down the line. If we just had the right people in politics, things will be better. And there's a great Greek word for that. It's called baloney. I'm not against telling you, you vote your conscience, but let me just say this. There's something deeper than a president of the United States that's going to change this country. It's called spiritual revival and awakening and reformation that only the Holy Spirit can bring. That's what we need to be praying for. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about politics. We should be. But the ultimate answer to the problem is a spiritual problem, and only God can solve that through His 
holy revival. Our friend Artaxerdia has said this. He says, on the contrary, the biblical record steadily reveals that God fulfills his purposes in the world, not through the means of a moral majority, but a holy minority. Do you realize that we're never going to be the power brokers in this culture? We're never going to be the famous, the rich. We're, we're never going to be the power brokers. As a matter of fact, you wait. It's, gonna ha- it's happening now. It will happen at breakneck speed. We will be on the edges. We will be marginalized. We will be on the fringes. We will be called every name in the book, and we need to be prepared for it. It is coming faster than you can even shake a stick at. I don't know how fast you can shake a stick, but it's coming pretty fast. This world is coming fast. And Jesus said, you're sent into this world. And so you can have two, two options. You can say, that big bad world out there, they're so bad, I hate them. And you can isolate. Or you can say, that big bad world out there, it's fearful. I, I, I might as well just join it. I'm going to compromise or I'm going to isolate. Jesus will not allow you to have either one of those options. And it starts with us. How dare we look down upon a lost and dying world when we ourselves are not holy? When we ourselves are not sanctified by God's word? It's the height of arrogance to look at a lost person and say, man, I can't believe what you're doing. And then in your own life, you've got unholiness. And you're not being sanctified by the word of truth. Colossians three sixteen through 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Okay, Jesus sent us on a mission. Where did he send us on the mission? Into the world. What are we to do when we go into the world? We're to declare his gospel. But there's a third thing here that makes it all come together. It's actually the most important thing. Are we going to somehow accomplish this in our own power, in our own strength? What's the bound, what's the the grounds for our victory in doing this? And this is the third thing that Jesus tells us. Number three, the question, what is our foundation for success in this mission? How are we going to be successful? How are we not going to compromise and how are we not going to isolate? Look at verse 19. What does Jesus say? And for their sake, I sanctify or consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, at first glance, if you misunderstand this passage of Scripture, you could become a heretic real quickly. So let me, let me, not make, you, let me make sure you don't leave here a heretic, okay? Like nobody wants to leave here a heretic, right? When Jesus says, I sanctify myself, what can that not mean? That cannot mean that somehow Jesus was sinful or somehow Jesus needed to be cleansed or somehow Jesus needed to be, uh, he, he was morally imperfect and needed to be holy. That's what it cannot mean. Because if, if that's what it means, you've denied the virgin birth, you've denied the sinlessness of Christ, that is a heresy. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Think about what that word consecrate means. It means to set apart for mission. What's Jesus saying? I'm setting myself apart for the mission of the cross. What's he about to go do? Die on the cross. Consecrate, sanctify. Those are the two words there that mean the same thing. 
Jesus is voluntarily setting himself apart for mission. And what's his mission? To die on the cross. John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. Now there's two clues in this passage of Scripture to help us understand that he's talking about the cross. First of all, the language of sanctification, the language of consecration is very similar to the Old Testament language of the priesthood. If you go back to Exodus chapter 28 and Exodus chapter 29, you find out that the priests were set apart. The animals were set apart. And so Jesus is setting himself apart for a sacrificial offering. He's not only the priest, he's the sacrifice. He's setting himself apart as our great high priest to offer himself. That's why the writers of, writer of Hebrews can say in, in Hebrews nine thirteen through 14, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, okay, comparing Old Testament to New Testament, Jesus, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. How much more does Jesus set himself apart by his blood to purify us? Hebrews 10.10, And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So this consecration language is Jesus setting himself apart for the cross, but there's also another clue there. How does verse 19 start? And for their sake. It's a little Greek preposition, who pair. It means in the place of, as a substitute for, for their sake. It's the word for substitutionary atonement. Jesus is going to set himself apart on the cross for us. He's going to die for us. That same little preposition shows up in Mark 14, 24. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. My blood's poured out for you. For for their sake, for our sake, on our behalf, Jesus is going to die. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, same Greek construction there. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus is going to set himself apart for us on the cross to die so that he can in turn send us out on a mission sanctified in the truth. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through, or 30 through 31 says this, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We become his sanctification. There's a lot of truths going on in this passage of Scripture that we need to understand. You and I are in a spiritual battle. Remember the devil is roaring around like a lion ready to attack us? We're in a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual warfare. You and I are in a world that hates us. Remember what Jesus just said? The world will hate you. The evil one will come against you. And what does Jesus say? Don't take him out of the world. That's what we wish he would have said. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them from 
the evil one. Jesus promises us spiritual protection, but he never tells us we can be out of the world. So he says you can never become friends with the world. You can never compromise with the world, but at the same time, you can never isolate from the world. So you can't become first compromised church, and you can't become first isolated church. You're sent into the world on a mission to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are faithful to the word of truth when you do that as you're sanctified by the truth. Your effectiveness only comes in how sanctified you are in the truth, And the grounds for your success is in the finished work of Jesus on the cross who set himself apart for us. Jesus died on the cross, rose again to save us from our sins. And now he sends us out to a world to tell them that message that they too can be saved from their sins and forgiven, cleansed, saved and have eternal life. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We have no choice. Jesus says, we're ambassadors. We've been sent. We are envoys on a mission. We've been sent out in the authority of King Jesus himself to plead with people to be reconciled. What does reconciliation mean? It assumes there's a rupture in a relationship. Reconciliation means that that people are alienated from God. People are separated from God. Sinful people need to be brought together to a holy God. We are ambassadors to tell people, you're separated from God, you need to be reconciled. And Paul says, I implore you, I beg you, With the bottom of my heart, I passionately ask you. So if you're here this morning, and you know that you are sinfully separated from a holy God, and you know you need to be reconciled, and you know you've never repented of your sins, and you know you've never asked forgiveness of those sins, and you know that you've never bowed the knee to King Jesus by believing in him, I implore you, the way Paul does, be reconciled to God. And that's a command with some urgency. Do it now. For the rest of you that have already bowed the knee to Jesus and been reconciled to God, would you take your mission very, very seriously? We are ambassadors for Christ. We've been sent out into the world to declare the gospel of Christ. We need to be sanctified in the truth. And we can be successful because Jesus set himself apart to die for us. And he gives us the victory. You cannot compromise. You cannot isolate. And those are two major fears. They're both sinful. Somehow in the middle, God gives us the courage to go straight into the world and to share the full gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and let God do a work of seeing lost people be brought to himself. We're ambassadors sent on a mission. 
Will you take that mission seriously? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. Temptation for us to compromise. And Lord, I, I understand it. We, we feel the pressure every day. We see the culture around us. We can become very afraid. We can see ourselves in a minority. We can see ourselves as not being given a hearing. And, and it's a strong temptation for us to compromise the truth. Help us to remain strong and faithful and sanctified by your word of truth. Lord, the other temptation is for us to isolate, to not engage at all, to not share the gospel, to, to hunker down and to, to hope things get better and to, to not want to share the gospel to, to the lost and dying world. And so, Lord, please protect us from isolation. We want to be who you've called us to be, and that's sin on a mission, ambassadors. As we go to people and we urge and we implore and we beg them to be reconciled to God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you guide us into all truth and you empower us to be witnesses. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work in our lives. Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross and you set yourself apart and died in our place that we might be set apart to have success in this mission as we go out. And would this week we be sanctified in the truth? Would we be so much in your word that our lifestyles are distinctly different, that our lives are different, that when we open our mouths to share the gospel, our lifestyle matches our message, and we are a people that are serious about the mission you've sent us on. You've saved us from the world to go back into the world to declare the the message to the world. Help us to do that faithfully. And we ask this in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.